Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Efforts to develop drugs for neurologic and psychiatric conditions has been plagued with failure. Herophilus is combining organoids derived from patient stem cells along with machine learning to gain new insight into the biology underlying these diseases and discover and develop more effective drugs. We spoke to Saul Cato, co-founder and CEO of Herophilus, about the drug development challenges for these diseases how his company is using organoids and machine learning to better understand how to target them, and its growing pipeline of therapeutic candidates. Saul, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. We're going to talk about Herophilus, the challenges of developing drugs to treat neurologic conditions, and Herophilus' platform to address those challenges. I think neurologic conditions tend to be an area of some of the hardest targets therapeutically. My my sense is this is an area with relatively high failure rates for drug developers. Why is that? Is it is it a lack of understanding of the complexity of these conditions, a lack of animal models, delivery challenges, or is it something else? I, I think the reason that neurology and psychiatry as categories have, have some of the lowest uh, success rates in drug discovery are primarily for two reasons. Um, these are complex conditions of com- a very complex organ, uh, not well understood how the brain works and when, it go- when things go wrong, why, why they go wrong. Um, so it's complexity of disease. And, uh, and secondarily, I think uh, because of that complexity to develop uh, effective therapies, we might have to um, take more more sophisticated approaches. I think those are the two two major issues. The other issues that you brought up, I mean, animal models are are certainly um, more challenged. The translatability of 
uh, of behavior between uh, species is hard. And, uh, and of course, uh, there are challenges of getting into the brain. But, you know, to be, to be fair, plenty, plenty of drugs do get into the brain. Arophilus has developed a platform for discovering therapies for neurologic diseases using patient-derived human models known as organoids. What's an organoid and, and how do you create them? Yeah, so an organoid is uh, somewhat kind of a scary science fiction sounding word, um, but it, you know, it, ha- it is the word that the industry and the field has, has settled on. And um, it, sounds, it sounds fancy and new, and in, in ways it is. It's a new way to culture um, cells, typically stem cells, uh, typically derived uh, or reprogrammed from patient samples, either blood or fibroblasts. Um, but when you culture uh, cells in a traditional flat-bottomed, say, glass dish or well on a well plate, um, you, you, the cells and neurons in particular tend to spread out, and they don't form uh, coherent, cohesive tissue. Uh, what was discovered, and these sort of discoveries stemmed from some of the pioneering work in the 90s, in Japan primarily by Sasai and Yamanaka and the folks that figured out how to make inducible pluripotent stem cells, IPSCs, uh, which have revolutionized the the field of culture, human-derived culture models. Um, They also figured out that if you change certain aspects of the way that you culture cells, um, some of the the, the sort of milieu, the setting, uh, the physical setting, as well as uh, provision of certain nutrients and molecules, um, the cells will, will sort of self-aggregate into, uh, into tissue-like um, uh, cultures. And depending on how you steer the fate of these cells, you can get uh, these cultures to appear as if they're forming brain tissue. That would be a brain organoid. Um, lots of success has been uh, shown to derive uh, other organ types. Virtually every organ in the body now, uh, someone has has developed a protocol to produce these organoids for. So they, it sounds kind of crazy and and, and weird, and um, I think it should be appreciated that in some ways this is actually a more realistic culture uh, than you know formerly from a traditional what was called two dimensional or dissociated culture. Uh, in, in ways, this is just a more natural way to grow grow stuff. Do you need to start with cells from a patient with a disease to get an organoid model of that disease, or is this something you're able to engineer? Yeah, uh, you can start with uh, a, an, an iPSC gen- generic line, a healthy line, uh, and use CRISPR or other other gene editing technology to to build to engineer models. That's really nice because you generally then have an isogenic control. You have um, you have an, another uh, uh, culture with exactly the same genetic background, except for the edit that you hope that you made. Um, but we tend to to start always from from patient uh, samples, and the reason for that is even for monogenic disease, but particularly for more complex uh, diseases. Um, you know, we believe that you, you need to study a, a distribution of, of genetic backgrounds to get a realistic picture of, 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 of the patient population and how, how the disease arises from their genetics. 
how well do they actually replicate neural activity in the brain? Yeah, that's that's one of the most profound features of these new culture models is that they, they really exhibit both uh, realistic neural activity network, uh, spontaneous network activity, neurons electrically discharging, uh, communicating with each other, and producing spatiotemporal patterns of activity that really, really resemble uh, in vivo recordings. Uh, it's quite profound if you're a neuroscientist and you, you see one of these cultures for the first time. Um, how realistic they look, and they just—they really are a step up from from the kind of electrical network activity you can induce in a in a two-dimensional culture. Um, but in addition to neural activity, um, you replicate uh, quite a bit of the other sort of large, uh, obvious biological uh, features, such as uh, gene expression, and I think quite profoundly the cytoarchitecture of tissue. So when you look at these under a microscope. Uh, these cultures, they really resemble the emergence, uh, you know, what you, what you see when you, when you, when you watch embryonic emergence of, of tissue, the neurons order, they layer, they, they form, um, they form kind of classical for, uh, in the case of cortex, cortical structures that you expect to see in a developing brain. Well, walk me through the platform. What's the process? How do you take a sample, run experiments and end up with actionable data at the other end? So everything starts with um, with a patient sample. In our case, um, this is again blood or um, fibroblasts from a skin biopsy. Mostly, we're we're starting with patient blood. It's easier to to get. Um, we reprogram those following uh, a you know, fairly standardized uh, protocol to generate inducible pluripotent stem cells (iPSCs). And then there's a sequence of culture steps to go from iPSCs uh, to organoids or to these um, sort of growing brain cultures. Um, and once we have uh, the brain cultures, um, we then um, sort of subject them to a battery of biological assays to read out what we call phenotypic data from these cultures. And this is before... Um, you know, doing anything uh, with regard to discovering drugs, we are developing a model of disease. So we profile uh, the all of the phenotypic characteristics of uh, organoids that come from patients with a genetic background of disease, and we compare that to healthy controls. Once we've built up that multi-phenotypic profile, which we call a deep phenotype, uh, we then have um, a set of, of biological criteria to screen uh, therapeutics against, and then we start. It starts. The process starts to resemble um, sort of thing, things from from the current mainstay of, of drug discovery, high throughput screening, for example. Um, we will generally extract uh, some aspects of the deep phenotype uh, into something that's scalable, what we call a primary assay, and we'll screen against that. Uh, and then follow up when we have a set of therapeutic hits um, for, with a deeper, secondary, deep phenotype screen. How much uniformity or variance do the organites have? And what's the consequence of that from a drug discovery and development point of view? Yes, with, 
with any new model, uh, there is what we, you know a, a process to industrialize or to tame the model. This is this is true for for new protocols in two dimensional culture, but also particularly so for these three dimensional or more sophisticated culture methods. And um, you know, organoids, uh, cerebral organoids, were appeared really on the scene around mid mid twenty tens, twenty thirteen. And um, initially, there was a lot of concern that um, variability across many, many different axes um, was going to render um, organoids just kind of too messy for, for real business. As an example, the gross morphology of organoids, depending on the protocol, can vary um, quite, quite widely, uh, starting with the exact same sort of initial conditions. You'll get organoids of wildly different shapes and sizes. Uh, they'll possess different uh, mixtures of tissue types uh, and cell types. And, um, you know, th that scares uh, any, any rigorous scientist that wants to develop statistically sound measurements. Um, however, a lot has been figured out uh, in the last 10 years about how to uh, tame the organoid, if you will, or reduce variability, both work at our company and, and, and in many other labs. And the good news is that um, we have, have really reduced a lot of the variability across many of the axes that biologists consider important for, um, for, for reading out sort of biologically meaningful signals. Um, and um, we also have figured out a set of knobs to sort of control the level of variance. And so it turns out that you can grow organoids in many different ways. And these ways live on a spectrum uh, from, you know, highly uniform, but maybe stripped down of, of sort of the diversity of function and of, of the heterogeneity, for example, the tissue and complexity of the tissue. And you can get, so for example, very nice, beautiful spherical organoids if, that's if, you, if you think that's important as the uh, experimenter. Uh, or you can turn up the, the sort of or, uh, the, the freedom to, to self-emerge um, by playing with some other protocol uh, parameters. And you can get organoids that, that sort of develop into multi-brainary organoids. And those will tend to be, to be more variable. And so um, you can reduce variability through a set of protocol optimizations. That's what's gone on over the last 10 years. And then uh, another way to deal with variability is, is, is really using replicates, right? So this is building up statistical strength simply by repeating experiments. That's another um, you know, big motivator for taking um, what, you know, like many, many biotechnology start as artisanal um, sort of hand crafted work uh, in small labs and, and scaling it up. The organoids you develop are, are part of an automated process that uses machine learning and, and deep analytics. What kind of data are you able to get on the organoids and, and how they respond to a, a drug or act in a disease state? Yeah, that's one of the beauty uh, beauties of, of this sort of intact or full, full systems approach um, because the organoids have a rich set of biological features across different modalities. And so we collect all kinds of data. We collect cytoarchitectural microscopy, so pictures of where the cells are. We measure the composition of the cells, um, the, the, the different types of, of, of neural subtypes that emerge. Um, we look at gene expression. We look at metabolomics, both in secreted media and intracellular metabolomics. Um, 
And we also look at functional activity. So we look at the neural activity that emerges uh, in, this, in, in the neural networks that, that grow. And so you're really getting a full picture of, of biological processes. And of course, um, that means you have a lot of high dimensional heterogeneous data. And we really, we use machine learning to, to sort of t distill that down into uh, a classifier or a picture, a, a simpler description of a disease state that we can then um, screen against. You're developing therapies for both neurodevelopmental diseases and for neurodegenerative diseases. The neurodevelopmental diseases you're pursuing are, are largely monogenic, although not exclusively. Does this change how you think about how you target the conditions and, and screen therapies? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the complexity, the etiological complexity of diseases, where you know the root causes, um, really, you know, will fall on a, a spectrum from monogenic disease, where you know, you know, many rare diseases are monogenic in nature. One gene is really known to be the cause, the root cause of the disease, um, and that uh, is 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 very attractive for for the for the drug hunter because. Um, you you know, kind of know that you should probably target either that gene itself or the gene underlying the the, the product uh, that is faulty uh, in a disease state, or or maybe one uh, one step downstream in a pathway. Um, but you can be kind of focal in your approach. Um, you know that starts to go away as you get into more complex diseases, where you suspect that more than one gene or gene product the interaction of gene products is at play in causing a disease. And that's probably the case for more complex diseases in, in you know, sort of the more diffuse neurogenerative, neurogenerative categories and also some neurodevelopmental disease. Um, we started with a, neuro, uh, with a monogenic disease because of this sort of, uh, you know, the feeling that it would be easier to prosecute. Um, but the, the intact systems nature of, of our approach is really designed to, to be able to go after more complex disease. So beyond monogenic disease, uh, for example, um, we're looking at a disease called 22Q.11 or DeGeorge syndrome. And, and that's a result of a, of a large deletion covering about 35 genes and also other, other intronic regions. But, um, uh, that uh, disease is still is kind of we might call it you know between monogenic and and highly polygenic, and so you know we we sort of look at the world as as kind of climbing up from monogenic disease and getting into polygenic disease. Your lead indication is in Rett syndrome. What is Rett syndrome, and and how does it manifest itself and progress? So Rett is a a really tragic disease. Um, that affects one in 10,000 female births. Uh, I think cumulatively there are about 350,000 in the world uh, RET patients. Uh, it comes on very uh, early in age, um, as early as a year uh, into, to a few years old, uh, are typically first diagnosis is made. And it exhibits a, a, a wide variety of, of, um, of symptoms, severe neurological symptoms, as well as other peripheral symptoms. Um, the neurological symptoms include seizures, um, deteriorating motor function, 
apnea and, and, and a lot of autistic like symptoms. And this is a really uh, devastating uh, disease, be, you know, because it sort of seems to come out of nowhere, much like autism uh, when, a, when a, uh, a, a girl is very young. Um, it's a monogenic disease. The, um, the gene was discovered in 1999, MECP2 by Huda Zogby. And um, this is, you know, provides hope and purchase for, uh, for again, for drug development programs. Um, we, can, we can target the disease at its root. Um, and I think it, you know, it, it, because of, because of the work done there and the knowledge and the disease biology and because of the severity and the high unmet need, um, you know, this, this is a, a, a disease that, that many, um, targeted approaches, new, 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 new biotechs, um, go after. You've identified a lead candidate. Um, what do you know at this point about the, the drug and where are you in the clinic? Yeah, so we took a, a particular strategy. There are a number of strategies to try to, to rescue uh, or cure this disease. And our particular strategy, this isn't, I, I should mention that red is, and the reason it, it, I only mention females is that it's an X-linked disease. It is typically lethal uh, in boys. This is a haploinsufficient disease. And um, every neuron, for example, will have either a healthy uh, or an unhealthy copy of, of this gene. And if they have the unhealthy mutated copy, um, that cell's not going to produce the gene product. Um, and this, the, the gene product of MECP2 is an early transcription factor. So one of the strat there, there are different strategies. You could um, pursue sort of a first-generation gene therapy approach and just try to ex- overexpress or express in um, MECP2. Um, the risk there is that um, overexpression of this um, of this transcription factor produces a disease as severe as RET, MECP2 duplication syndrome. Uh, so we, we looked at that and we decided to take an approach that others have, are also pursuing, which is uh, X reactivation. So the idea is that if we can just turn on the healthy silent copy um, in, 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 in neurons, then um, we'll, you know, sort of have a, uh, an automatically dose regulated um, gene expression approach. And so, we, we conducted screen for small molecules for X reactivation, um, and we and we did find one, and you know, we hope to ha- to be in the clinic next year. Your lead indication in the area of neurodegenerative diseases is in Alzheimer's disease. There's been a lot of debate uh, about the targets that drug developers have used in pursuing Alzheimer's because of the large number of late stage failures. How well do you understand the target when? your platform identifies a, a potential therapeutic. Yeah. So one, one of the, another great feature of, of these um, intact systems is that we can do target discovery, validation, deconvolution. So you can start with a phenotypic approach where you screen for drugs that rescue the features, microscopic features exhibited by, by our disease and our disease models. Uh, and then go back and under, you know, try to understand if you find uh, a, a perturbatant, a pharmacologic perturbatant or a therapeutic that modifies the phenotypes, then we can go back and understand with, with more clarity how, how uh, this is actually, the, the, the therapeutic is working and thereby discover the targets, the molecular targets involved in the disease. And of course, um, you know, there's always been a challenge in Alzheimer's around um, 
getting confidence around the, what we call the arrows of causality. Um, there are clear signals of disease uh, in misfolded proteins in things like A, A beta 4240 ratios. And, you know, there's, there's been quite a bit of molecular characteriz- characterization. And there's no doubt that those are concomitant with disease progression. Um, but the risk has always been, and the question has always been, um, which way is, is the causality arrow, arrow pointing? In other words, are these, um, these measurables causing the disease or are they another side effect of disease progression? And so that's one of the great things about our system is we can really, you know, pause and take a longer time in, pre, in the preclinical uh, development phase to really understand what is going on in the disease, what the molecular uh, components are, and which which are causal to which. And so a great deal of work uh, uh, is being done now to to sort of take uh, redoubled efforts to understand these these sort of etiological. Uh, um, network of, of Alzheimer's, and, and we're, we're quite active in that area now. Well, where are you in this program, and when might you be in the clinic? Yeah, so the downside of, of you know, taking a measured approach, of course, is that we are probably quite a ways off from, from human clinical testing, unfortunately. Um, you know, we, we do think it's we should we should really you know make sure we understand and have a higher degree of confidence about the biology that we're observing and, and how this all works. So unfortunately, I don't have a great a great story for you there. <laughs> Saul Cato, co-founder and CEO of Herophilus. Saul, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.